Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 6. Well, the last time we were together, we saw the apostles' response to intense persecution, and we learned that if God wants something accomplished, there's nothing that's going to stop it anyway. Today we're going to see more problems come up within the church, and we're also going to be introduced to the character of Stephen. According to the scripture, he's only mentioned in chapters 6 and 7. It appears that he has a short life, but he has a very powerful life. So I'm going to take my time with Stephen. I'm going to, chapter 6 isn't very long, but I, uh, that's all I'm going to cover today. And then we'll cover chapter 7 next Sunday, because there's a lot to this. Starting with verse 1. It says, Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a murmuring against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. So what we saw was, in chapter 4 and the end of chapter 5, Satan attacks the church from the outside via intense persecution. Here, uh, in the beginning of chapter 5, starting with Ananias and Sapphira, and also the beginning of chapter 6, we see Satan attack the church or God's people from the inside. More of an insidious, deceptive, you know, getting his way in there and attacking the church. And you see with God's people, this is a constant ebb and flow. Sometimes the forces of darkness will attack God's people with a full frontal assault. They'll just attack you and overwhelm you, and you'll be back on your heels and you'll be reeling, you know, crying out to the Lord. And then there's times when maybe we feel a little bit overconfident that Satan won't do it where we can see him. He'll do it surreptitiously. You know, he'll do it really sneakily, and you don't see it coming. And bam, he blindsides you, right? And you see this going back and forth. Personally, I think the second way is worse because you don't see it coming. But in verse 1, you see a cause and effect here. You see a directly proportional relationship between church, the church growth and problems. As a matter of fact, the official Calvary exposition on the parable of the mustard seed, where Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, although it's the smallest of all the seeds, it grows to be this great tree. Great, it grows so big that all the birds nest in it. Uh, again, the official Calvary position is that uh, the birds were always bad in Scripture, and, or in, in prophecy, and that the, that's a picture of the church growing too fast and to allow bad influences to come into the church, more of a macrocosmic view of the church growth. That being said, you have this issue here. You have the Hellenists, right, who have this problem. And the Hellenists, the word Hellenist is basically a transliteration of the Greek. And what that just means is, Normally, when you take a foreign language, you say, well, what, how do you say shoes? Como se dice en español? And you point to your shoes, and then the person will say what it is in a different language. 
what a transliteration is when you retain the original word from one language to another. It was done a lot with the Hebrew names. The Hebrew names, instead of being translated to what the names meant, the name uh, would actually be taken from the Hebrew, Adam or Adama, and brought actually into the English. You see what I'm saying? No, no translation, but transliterated. So these Hellenists, they were Greek-speaking Jews. These were Jews that were outside the land of Israel, most likely from the diaspora. Those of you who are familiar with history, was, uh, in 722 B.C., the Assyrians came and attacked the northern kingdom of Israel. They expatriated a lot of the people, took them to Assyria. Okay, 586 B.C., the Babylonians come, attack, you know, besiege the, te- uh, the Jerusalem, and again, expatriate the people, carry them out to Babylon. So what you had was, over the years, the great scattering of the Jewish people. No more were they confined to the land of Canaan, but they were to all these foreign countries, to Babylon, to Persia, to Greece, and they went out as, as these new kingdoms conquered, right? Now what happened was, when the people went back to rebuild the temple... Years later, like roughly 70 years later, the, uh, a lot of the Jews said, you know what, we've made homes in Babylon. We, we know the culture, we speak the language, we don't want to go back. And you see that in, in the book of Ezra and a lot of these books of the children of Israel coming back, a lot of the Israelites stayed in Babylon. So what happened was over time, by the time of the first century, you had a lot of Jews who spoke foreign languages, who intermarried into foreign cultures, who lived in foreign lands, adopted foreign dress, and really when they would meet a Jew from Israel, they would be very different. So you have this going on here, and I'm kind of setting you up for why there's a problem. These Hellenists believed that their widows were second-class citizens compared with the widows indigenous to Israel. That's a problem. Really, it's tantamount to charges of racism. And before you think I'm overreacting, one of the definitions in the dictionary is a practice that holds economic domination of one group over another. This was the charge leveled against these people. That's a pretty heavy charge to be leveled at the model church, don't you think? We, we look at the Bible and we think everything's perfect, you know, but not so. The Bible deals with all relevant issues, though, uh, the way I see it, that deals with human nature. All relevant issues, including this one. But whether it was a perception issue on the people, on the Hellenists, or it was a practice, it was a problem with the practice, it was a problem that had to be dealt with. Because left uncorrected, it could have been disastrous to the early church. And we're going to see how they correct this problem, because they do. But it kind of brings me to my point. Every church has its problems. Every church. You may ask why. Because you're dealing with imperfect people. You're dealing with sinners. And we're still sinners, but we're saved. You know, we, uh, Jesus has given us salvation. It's It's beautiful. But we're not perfected on this side of eternity. We still sin. We still hurt people's feelings. We still have selfishness, right? Uh, So from the congregation to the leadership, you're dealing with imperfect people. That's the answer. The perfect church doesn't exist. There's no such animal as the perfect church. You're not going to find one. That's why people who church hop become frustrated because they keep going to a church saying, well, this is where I'm going to settle in and find my perfect church. And what happens is they get upset about something and they go to another one. And then eventually they get upset about that and it just goes on and on and on. You never find the perfect church. So what's the goal then? The goal is to do the best we can with what we have. Not to run away, but try to confront problems and make things better. God's people are not supposed to be quitters. God didn't didn't save us. God didn't help us to be conformed to the image of Christ for us to be quitters. 
And even if you look at it as an individual basis, how do we solve problems? Think about that for a moment. Think about some of the problems you may have. How do we solve problems? Because people are watching. Your coworkers are watching. Your neighbors are watching. Your unsafe friends and family are watching. And they want to see how you solve problems. Because if we fall apart and if we, you know, we panic and we run from all of our, our troubles, why would anybody watching want to be a Christian, right? So, you know, that it's something to really consider. I, was, uh, I had the good fortune to counsel uh, two younger officers that I know of off the top of my head to some marriage issues. And, you know, not major ones, but, but minor ones, young, young guys and young marriage, and there's always going to be problems. But I remember talking to them and quoting some scripture, and they said, you know what, you're so right, that makes so much sense. So the first thing we do is we always tell them the playbook that we're taking our plays out of. And the playbook is the scripture. Yeah, I'm so right. Yeah, I make so much sense. But I didn't come up with it. It was written down a long time ago before I was born, right? So the first way to solve problems is always take them to the Word of God. And the Word of God gives us wisdom. And what is wisdom? Wisdom is just basically applied knowledge. We have the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, and they bring us wisdom to help us to solve our problems. Again, God's people aren't quitters. We draw strength from God to get us through our troubles. And now we see that here. We see, we're going to see a whole bunch of problems in the book of Acts. And we're going to see how men, men and women of God handle and solve those problems by drawing strength from God. They did it, and we can do it. We, we can do it because we have the same tools available that they had. We have his word, and we have his Holy Spirit. Same equipment. Verse 2. So they say, it is not desirable, the twelve, the apostles say, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now this may come off with an air of condescension until we do further investigation. This statement came from men who walked with Jesus. They observed for years the ultimate model of serving through Jesus. They learned serving, and they also practiced it themselves. Now, God had different plans for them, And he needed someone to take their place in administration. He was moving them to a different level of ministry. That's why in verses 3 and 4, deacons are appointed. And you may ask, what is a deacon? Well, let me take you to 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. It says, likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money. Well, there's a good one in today's society that people should heed. Not greedy for money. That's not what we're called to do in ministry. Holding the mystery of faith with a pure conscience. Let these also be proved or tested. Then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. That doesn't mean sinless. It means blameless. It means something that you're not actively engaging in, that somebody could point the finger at you and say, how could you be in ministry, right? Likewise, their wives. Their wives had requirements too. Their wives must be reverent, not slanderers or malicious gossipers, not are temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Jesus Christ. So there you have it. 
elders, uh, basically the same requirements with some variation. And in addition to that, elders are required to teach. Elders have to teach. First Peter 5 and Titus 1 speak about those requirements. Now, what we're starting to see is roles form within the early church. In verse 1, it says, we go into a little linguistics here. In verse 1, at the end of the uh, verse, it talks about the daily distribution, which is a noun. In the Greek, it's diakonia, which also means service, distribution or service. In verse 2, the same form of that Greek word is used, but it's, it's in a verb form, and it says serve, which the word is diakoneo. Now, both of these are translated to deacon. They just took the word from the Greek and brought it into the English. But what it means is a deacon is a servant. People say, well, I'd like to be a deacon. You know, I'd like to do something in the church. I'd like to maybe, I don't know, some people wrongly think, well, I, I want to have status. I want to be a deacon. But a deacon is a servant. Are you looking for a prominent position in the church? How does being a servant sound? <laughs> it doesn't have a very nice ring in our society. Service, to, to serve someone is the nemesis to freedom, right? Which we enjoy so much in this country. One of our elders, Art, was teaching uh, the Wednesday night Bible study, and he brought up a good example of a, a man who came out of the world who was of um, probably some wealth and reputation and stature, and he wanted to serve, he became a Christian, wanted to serve in the men's ministry. And he said, what can I do? And Art said to them, him, the first thing you could do is clean the men's bathroom. Well, he bristled at that, that idea. Even though he was, was saved, it, there still was that issue with that service thing, right? It's difficult. I remember when I was out of work in uh, 1999 for a few months, and uh, the, the gentleman who's still there, Jeff Healy, who does uh, a lot of the maintenance for the, for the place, great godly man, he's really a servant. Uh, I don't know if he was testing me or what, but he said, uh, how would you, because I said, I want to do some volunteer work. I've got a lot of time. He goes, well, how would you feel about cleaning the men's bathroom? And I said, I don't, I don't care. Give me the spray bottle and the thing. I don't know how great of a job I'm going to do, but I'll try it, right? But the way he asked me was almost as if he was hesitant. And I, I wonder if, you know, even Christianity today, there's some things that as Christians we just don't want to do. Well, we want to grow in Christ. We want to be perfected, but not that, you know? How do you ask, well, I, how, I'd like to do anything to grow in Christ and be close to my Lord, but say, but not that. I have a whole list of things that I don't want to do, and that's one of them, right? You can't be a good leader until you learn to serve. It's just the way it is. The world is hung up on self-respect, love yourself enough not to serve anyone, but the Bible says different. The Bible says, by nature, we're too self-centered and we're too self-indulged. It's healthy for us to serve. Again, taking Jesus as an example, you can't lead until you've learned to serve. Now, when Jesus was on the earth, he washed the disciples' feet. And we talked about that portion of scripture. The feet, open-toed sandals, whatever, they were dirty. They were you know, sweaty from the climate. They didn't have nice sidewalks, concrete jungles like we have. But you know, it was very filthy. And, and Jesus took all of their sandals off and washed their feet and cleaned their feet. Now, I'm going to guess that if Jesus was here today, that he would clean the bathrooms. Just knowing what I know of my Lord and Savior, if he cleaned dirty feet, that he would have cleaned the bathrooms. Our elders, ministry leaders, pastors, and staff are here to serve you. I may not send them to your house next week to clean your bathroom, but they will serve you, okay? <laughs> 
They'll provide church services. They'll answer questions for you. They'll pray with you. They'll do hospital visits, and they teach, and they do many things. But similar to this situation, going back to the scripture, I couldn't do all that my elders, my ministry leaders, my pastors, and my staff do. Like these guys, I would have no time for prayer and the word of God. So in verse 3, we see a few initial requirements that, uh, that are drummed up about these seven guys. We want to pick from a pool of seven guys, and this is what their requirements will be. Number one, they have to have a good reputation or a good foundation. They have to be proved or tested, as we saw in 1 Timothy. The Bible is very clear. If you're faithful in the little things and you're faithful, God will move you to be faithful in bigger things. Okay? That's just how it works. And it's sort of like your job. Those of you who are in the workforce, you do your job. I've been a police officer for 15 years. You know, some kid comes on the squad and he's a rookie and all of a sudden he becomes the chief of police. I'm going to have an issue with that. He wasn't faithful in the little things. How can you give him that position? All right? And if you've experienced that in your job, maybe through nepotism or some type of unfair treatment, it bothers you because they're not tested in the little things. So how could you give them big things? They're going to mess it up, right? And I would mess it up too. You've got to learn the job, right? And two, the other thing is wisdom. Uh, or Sophias in the Greek. The word Sophia means wisdom. That's a cool name for a lady. But we need to have common sense, and we need to have the ability to apply that knowledge, right? And three, they have to be full of the Holy Spirit. They have to have a, a Spirit-filled life. Now, that doesn't mean that you walk on water, okay, but the Spirit in your life is evident. I don't walk on water. Ask my wife when I'm home. You know, I try to be a good guy, but I'm not perfect. I make my mistakes, but I believe that I have a spirit-filled life. And the Holy Spirit helps us to apply that knowledge. Verse 4. He says, But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Prayer and the Word of God. We can never overstate prayer. Uh, I can tell you that I'm, um, your pastor is daily in prayer. I have this for some reason. No matter when I go to sleep, my body clock has changed recently. And I always wake up the same time in the morning. And it's early. It's before the rest of my family gets up. And I... I'm already up. I might as well get up, put my shoes on, and go outside. I walk around the property, and I pray. That's what I do. And I'll tell you what. Prayer has good practical applications. I'll tell you a little story. It was about a week ago, and it was really hot out, and I needed to move some, some equipment. And I used my wife's truck because I couldn't use my car because I didn't have enough room. So I, it was really hot, and I came home, and I rolled all the windows down. Unbeknownst to me, it was supposed to rain the next day, right? You know where this is going. So... <laughs> So uh, it rains in the morning. I get up out of bed, and it's early, and I'm like, eh, it's raining out. I could pray. It's not raining too bad. So I go outside, and it's cool, praying, talking to the Lord, and I see the windows are open. And I'm like, oh, you know, my wife's truck is getting wet now. I open the door. The seats aren't too wet. So I run in the house real quiet, get the keys, start up the truck, and roll the windows up. And then I'm done praying. I get in the house, and my wife jumps out of bed because it's raining harder. She hears the rain on the roof. She goes, my windows are open. And I said, no, baby, I already took care of the windows. Now, I didn't tell her when I rolled up the windows. She didn't ask that question. So prayer, you know, it saved my hide in that particular instance. Verse 5. These guys have a bunch of Greek names. You look at all the names here, they're Greek names. Um, was it a coincidence that they picked these guys? Maybe it was to immediately deflate the favoritism charges against the church. Maybe it was to make the Grecian widows feel more comfortable after the, you know, the little thing that went on there. Maybe it was a combination of both. But notwithstanding, 
we see diversity come into the church. It's not limited anymore to indigenous Jews. And we see as we go through Acts that more of the Gentiles are take a prominent role in the church. And it meets with some resistance at first, but that's what happens. And also, we see the women's role start to change. Jesus broke through the, the sexist barrier at the time with the women. A lot of the women uh, were his best companions uh, regarding you know, the resurrection and being at the cross. They were a lot of times more faithful than the men were. So you see that even in the, uh, you see the role starting to change more, and you see, again, more diversity come into the church. Diversity is a good thing. Uh, I just was, for some reason, I was thinking about this, and I hadn't thought of it before. I've been, Anthony and I have been in together in ministry for almost two years now. But uh, Anthony and I are pretty diverse, and you wouldn't know it from the outside. I mean, there's one thing that we have in common is that we're, we're both brothers in the Lord. Another thing that you might be obvious to you is we're fellow paisans. <laughs> but that's where the similarity ends. So let, me, let me go into this a little bit. Anthony grew up in New Jersey. I grew up in New York. I have a law enforcement background. Anthony has an a information technology computer background. I'd rather deal with bad guys than deal with computers. Uh, Anthony comes from a Christian missionary alliance. I come from a Calvary. Anthony and Sherry were heavily involved with the youth. Uh, Anthony's multi-talented. You see, he plays the djembe, he plays the guitar, and you're going to see soon that he can sing, right? <laughs> Where is he? <laughs> He's on the floor. <laughs> now, I can't sing, and if I started singing, I bet you I would whittle this place down to about 10%. As a matter of fact, I try to sing praise songs in the shower, and my wife slams the door, and she says, uh, you're hurting God's ears because you're hurting mine. <laughs> so we're different. You know, I study more of the Greek and the prophetic stuff. So even the uh, Bible teachers that we've, you know, t- learned under over the years have been vastly different. He, stu- he learned under some teachers that I'd never heard of and vice versa. And we have stri- scriptural and spiritual strengths uh, that are different. And I could go into our elders, too. Our elders, between our our oldest elder and our youngest elder, somebody's thrown off the curb back there, uh, is a difference of 40 years, 40 years difference. Uh, We have elders from different backgrounds, different cultures, different languages. So, And and I see that that reflected in our fellowship. Look around. You see a lot of different people, which is a good thing. Now, diversity is good. Except the world tries to force diversity, which can be a problem, and I'll tell you why. Because the natural man... There's the natural man and the spiritual man. There's the natural man will hold on to his prejudices because of fear. People fear what they don't understand. That's a, a, a big reason for people fearing people who are different. They don't understand them. But the Bible says that perfect love casts out all fear. And the spiritual man doesn't fear diversity. He enjoys it and he celebrates it. I'll give you a real life example. I did the prison ministry, and I don't do it as frequently now, obviously because I have other obligations, but... For years I did the prison ministry, and if you go into any prison, you ladies or you men who have done prison ministry, you go in and what you see is medium security, maximum security. You see the blacks are with the blacks, the whites are with the whites, and the Hispanics are with the Hispanics. They all lump together. Why? It's because of fear. Because they don't trust or they don't understand people who are different from them, and they feel more comfortable with people who are like them. But you know what's interesting? When we go into the prisons... Do you know what unites all the people from the different colors and races and all that stuff? You know what unites them? You can call out if you want. The Bible study. When the guard calls Bible study and they give us a room to do the Bible study in the prison, 
You see, blacks, Hispanics, whites, Asian, they all sit together because God breaks through all those boundaries. Isn't that amazing? You see it right in the prison. So God's word unifies us. Verse 6. You see the practice here of laying on of hands. Laying on of hands was an Old Testament practice to designate someone for a work or a ministry. And it was usually accompanied by prayer. And you see that they're praying prior to laying on of hands. And Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy, don't lay hands on anyone too soon. So when it comes to elders or pastors, you know, the leadership should be in prayer, the body should be in prayer, that the Lord would move us to choose the right people to be to fulfill these positions. Verse 7. And the word of God spread. And this is as a result of not being bogged down in, administ- in administration. It worked. As a new pastor, uh, a brother in the, in the fellowship gave me a book, and it was titled Avoiding Ministerial Burnout. I don't know if he was trying to tell me something, <laughs> but he did try to do a lot of things in the beginning. It's common for new pastors to think that they have to do everything. And there's different reasons for that. Some of them are pride. The attitude could be, well, if I don't do it, it's not going to get done right. Well, you're kind of leaving God out of the equation there. There's other people that God has used and called who can do that job just as well as you, if not better. Uh, Guilt. Sometimes they'll have to do everything because I have to, because I'm expected to. That's not the right reason to do it. Some are right reasons, you know, starting up a new fellowship and you have no choice until you've really prayed and have found people who are uh, tested and proved that you can bring into ministry and some are done for the wrong reasons. If you show me a pastor who does everything, I'll show you a pastor who's not in prayer enough or in the word enough or he's fried. He's French toast because he's trying to do everything. It's not good for him. It's not good for his congregation. And it's not good for his family. So it's really cool. The book of Acts has so many appli- I mean, we could be here all day making applications for every verse because this is our handbook. This is our playbook where we get our plays out of, right? And in verse 7, what's really cool here is you see fruit. It says, and this is one small subsection of a verse that if you read it too fast, you'll miss it. It says, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Whoa, weren't those the Sadducees? Weren't those the aristocrats? Weren't those the guys who didn't believe in angels, spirits, and the resurrection? Wait, there's got to be a typo here. No, the Greek word priest is priest, and that's all it can mean. It says a great many. Again, the Greek word is achlos. Now, that word was used in Matthew's gospel when Jesus looked out on the multitudes and had compassion over them. So this word means a large contingent of priests. We're not talking about a handful. We're talking about a lot of these guys became obedient to the faith. And I think there was uh, different estimates. There could have been, in that area, there could have been about 18,000 priests who were in the area. How many actually came to the Lord? I don't know. But a great many did. And this is a good proof text to evangelize those who are steeped in religion and ritual, but lack that deep relationship with God, as with the priests here. Sometimes religious people are the hardest people to reach. The attitude is, I'm religious, I don't need salvation. I got my routine, I got my thing to do, and I'm good. As long as I do this, I'm okay. I'll give you an example. Uh, somebody I know, some years back, I was talking to him about the Lord, and he said, he goes, I- I'm religious. And he thought it was okay to live a lifestyle where he could be an adulterer, and he was fine with that. And he said, as long as while I'm on my deathbed, I could get the priest to come in and give me my last rites, no repentance, I can make it into heaven. 
I just scratch my head and say, I mean, try to look at this logically. If you're God, I mean, none of us are God, but if you think about God's perspective, right? He's looking down and saying, Gabriel, a loophole, something I missed. The guy just slipped in. I mean, come on. Can we fool God? I mean, this is the attitude. It's like we're very smart. Our God has made an incredible brain to fit in our skull. But God's far greater. You know, the, the, the foolishness of God, the Bible says, is greater than the wisdom of man. So, I mean, how could we ever, I mean, there's loopholes in the legal systems, there's loopholes in everything. But how could you slip one past God like he's not going to notice that? I, I, sometimes I just don't, you know, very rarely I don't have an answer. Times like that, sometimes I just don't have an answer. <laughs> I just give up. Just pray for him. So, just when the disciples thought they weren't making a difference to the oppressive religious system, then fruit. Did you ever feel... Be honest, did you ever feel that you weren't making a difference? Right? I'm a Christian, I want to be like God, I, I want to, be, uh, to get close to his standard, I want to be perfected and become like the image of Christ, and I just feel like I'm not making a difference. Well, some people think they couldn't do what the disciples did. These were supermen. These guys were really special. Really. If you're taking notes, I'd like you to write down these two scriptures. The first one is Romans 7. Romans 7 verses 14 to 25. <laughs> and read what Paul says about himself. <laughs> the things that I want to do for God, you know, the, the holy things I want to do, I find myself not doing. And the things that I don't want to do because they're wrong, I find myself doing. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul is having this great discussion, because it encourages me, about himself and his failures and his trying to be close to that standard, but continuing to miss the mark. Were these supermen? I don't believe so. Read that scripture. Galatians 2, another one. Got one for Paul and one for Peter. Galatians 2, verses 11 through 21. This is a good one. Peter's, here's the situation. Peter's hanging out with the Gentiles, right? It's cool. God's brought everybody into the fold. Hanging out with the Gentiles, eating with the Gentiles. Hey, pass the bacon. I can eat pork now. Everything's good, right? Then the Jews come in, and Peter, whoa, here comes the Jews. And he, he, you know, he distances himself from the Gentiles, starts hanging out with the Jews. Paul says, I withstood Peter to his face because he played the hypocrite. And he brought a bunch of people with him playing the hypocrite. So, you know, not a good start, Peter. I mean, you're, he's got the Holy Spirit now, and he makes this, this colossal blunder here. You know, could have been very stumbling to a lot of people. And of course, you know, God forgives, and Peter did a great job afterwards, but... These are just men, just like you and me. They're human beings, right? Sometimes when you're just about at the end of trying, then something like this happens with the priests. Sometimes when you're just about at the end of your rope, bam, fruit happens from all the labor that you've done you know, with the Lord. And sometimes, don't be discouraged, we won't see the fruit until on this side of eternity. We just won't see it. We'll see it when we're, you know, we're with the Lord and he just shows us hey, you talk to that person, and that talk, person talked to that person, and that person became a missionary to this, this big city overseas, and you know, a thousand people were saved. Wow, I would have never known that being over here. But we may not see that until you know, the end. Galatians 6.9 says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So take heart. The disciples are still bearing fruit 2,000 years later, Half a world away in this fellowship today, right? Likewise, much of the labor you've endured for the Lord, the Lord's work will one day be manifest because the Bible says you reap what you sow. Okay, verse 8. 
we're introduced okay, to Stephen. Stephen, the Greek Stephanos, means garland, crown. It denotes an earned achievement, more of a victor's crown. And we'll see it because there's two, I think diadema was the other word, uh, another type of crown. But this is a different type of crown. Uh, and we're going to see that when we go into chapter 7, that Stephen really earned his victor's crown. But his faith and power preceded wonders and, st- and signs. And that's, that's the way the order goes. In order for there to be true wonders and signs, faith and power has to pre- pre- precede it. Okay, verse 9. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all those who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. The freedmen. These were Jews who were once slaves in the Roman world and won their freedom. Uh, A few of these areas, Cyrene was North Africa. Remember Simon the Cyrenian, the one who helped Jesus carry his cross. Alexandria was a prominent city even way back in Egypt. Uh, It's still a city in Egypt today. Uh, Cilicia. Well, let's go to Asia first. Asia was uh, uh, the area, believed, of modern-day Turkey, uh, north of, of where this is going on. And Cilicia, which Tarsus was the capital of. And those of you who are Bible students know that the Apostle Paul, uh, when he, before he was Paul, he was Saul, he came from Tarsus. So some speculate that actually right here, although it doesn't say it, Stephen may have debated Paul uh, while he was having this debate with the freedmen. And it's just speculation. These were different provinces provinces uh, outside Israel, the ones mentioned. And it may have been that the Hellenists that we spoke of before, uh, these guys were actually Hellenists that Stephen was debating with. Verse 10. It says, And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Now, again, this is available to anyone. You know, if you want to be obedient to the Lord and you... Jesus said, as much as you pray and ask for the Holy Spirit, your Heavenly Father will give you the Holy Spirit. So somebody once said that, how much of God could we have? And the answer was, as much as we ask for. You know, it's limitless, but, you know, we have to come out of ourselves and say, I, I, don't, I want to have less of myself, but more of God in my life. Uh, there was a situation some years back where I lived in East Brunswick, and I lived off of a main street, and the local people from the different churches would come and knock on the door, and some of them... One particular one was a, a false religion, and the woman knocked on the door, and she came in. And we started talking about uh, some things, and it turns out I was a Christian maybe three, four years, not long, and she was uh, a minister for 22 years in this particular um, belief system. And I noticed that I would get frustrated because I knew what she was saying was wrong, but I didn't have enough, of, I didn't have enough of the scripture yet to really refute what she was saying. And I really did my homework, I studied, I prayed, because she came several times. And I, I would notice this, when I was really in tune with the Lord and in prayer and in the Word, uh, we would have these discussions and she was, was 
you know, stifled. It's like she didn't know what to say because I was really able to use the word of God in a way to help her understand that what she was following really didn't make sense. And then if she would come again, if I got a little cocky in, in my mind, I thought, okay, Lord, I, I can handle it from here. I got it. I didn't do so well. But it was really true. The more I was in tune with the Lord, the, the better the conversations went. And they weren't arguments. She actually said, well, you know a lot of the Bible. And I, I could feel there's a lot of love in this home. And she was genuine. But I, I know that when I would get ahead of the Lord and kind of put him on the side and say, I got it from here, Lord. You know, I got the wheel. Then I wouldn't do so well. So it's true to be in tune with the Lord. Verse 11 and 12. He says, Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stir up the people and they end up seizing Stephen. But if you didn't know you were reading Acts, you might think this came out of one of the Gospels. A lot of this stuff, because the disciples, uh, the people who followed Jesus, they emulated his character. So a lot of things that happened to them, you can see back in the Gospels, happened to Jesus. And a few scriptures that I want to read or in John 15, if you turn to John 15, starting with verse 18, I could imagine a lot of these words would come back to these men of God during this time period, after the ascension, and, and they were kind of on their own there, but they had the Holy Spirit. I could imagine a lot of Jesus' words would ring back in their minds. Now, I don't know uh, where Stephen was, if he was one of the many in the crowd. I mean, he wasn't one of the twelve, but... Uh, I'm sure he was taught by the apostles a lot of Jesus' teachings. And Jesus says this, John 15, verse 18. Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. So there you have it. Why is this happening to me? Because if you, you know... All, the scripture says, all who live godly will suffer you know, persecution, but the Lord delivers them out of it all. And it's true. You lead a godly life, you emulate Christ, you are in tune with his word. The world will hate you because you're a, you're a cog in the wheel. The world wants to move forward toward an agenda. And true Christians are, are putting cogs in the wheel of the world so it can't move smoothly. So they're going to have a problem with you. Unfortunately, there's many who fall under the Christian banner and fall with every wind of doctrine and every way that the world wants to go and, you know, they go with it. But true Christians will fight the evil that's pervasive in the world and the agenda that's set by the world. And it's not fair because the world will come at us from deceitful or trickery angles and the tendency is to fight fire with fire. But the Bible says not to repay evil for evil. And I find that it's a lot harder... <laughs> You know, when I go out on patrol, I get the gun and the handcuffs and the radio and the vest and, you know, all these tools, the pepper spray. And I know how to use my tools because we're trained with them. And that's easy. Those are carnal weapons, right? But it's a lot harder to fight with spiritual weapons, put on the whole armor of God, the different pieces, you know, um, and the, the sword of the spirit to go forward with the sword of the spirit. Well, I'd rather have a regular sword and, and stab them and poke them a few times to get their attention. But God says, use the sword of the spirit. And you saw Peter in the garden of Gethsemane 
He took out the carnal sword, and Jesus said, put that thing away. And Peter's like, now what do I do? And he fled. So it's a lot difficult to fight with spiritual weapons than with carnal weapons. You know, you fight back, you repay evil for evil, and then they just wait for you to do that. And they say, see, I thought you were a Christian. I guess you're just no different than anybody else. And then, man, that's such a sinking feeling. And I'm sure that's happened to all of us at least once if you've been a Christian for a while, right? So we're going to see Stephen's example in the next chapter. In verse 15, last uh, verse here that we're going to cover, it says, And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Now, when my sister and I were little kids, we had chubby cheeks, and my grandmother used to pinch our cheeks and say, you have a face like an angel. But I don't think that's what's meant by that here, okay? On the other hand, angels aren't cute. You know, that picture of the little wings and the chubby faces and the ringlets, that's not really what an angel looks like. Uh, to the contrary, angels were usually responsible for judgment, cataclysmic events, they were God's messengers, and they meant business. That's why when an angel appeared to someone, they would fear, and the angel would say, do not fear. Why am I be- being visited by an angel? This can't be good. Do not fear. I've come to give you a message from God, right? And I don't think that fear is trying to be conveyed here either. Similar to Moses' face shining when he came down from the mountain, right? And the people saw the glow of Moses' face, face. They knew that Moses was communing with God, and it, it showed physically on him. Likewise, Stephen had a closeness with God that couldn't help but show. It was in his behavior, it was in his wisdom, it was in his knowledge of the scriptures, and it was in all facets of Stephen's life. So I believe the meaning here is that Stephen was truly a messenger of God, and it was obvious. He had a face like an angel. He had a face that somehow when people looked at him, there was something about him that they knew he was from God. And the interesting thing was they fought against him anyway. Stephen's example is a timeless example for all of us. As we see, he was a selfless display of a servant of God. Prior to putting this message together, uh, recently I had uh, some emails and postcards from specifically two of our missionaries. And I just want to talk briefly about uh, two of them. The first guy's name is Stephen. And the second person, I'm not even going to use their name because since we're on the Internet and all, uh, there's a certain area that they're in that they could get in trouble by the local authorities if somehow they were to find out that they were missionaries and what they were really doing. But Stephen is our missionary to Guatemala. He's our young man in his 20s with no 401K and no career to fall back on. He's out there every day building latrines for the local people in Guatemala, ag- agricultural product, uh, projects, and clean water projects. Um, and I love the stories. I, I, I love listening to the missionaries because I love stories, right? So I listen to their stories. The last story that happened to him was he was with actually some Americans who were visiting for the first time, and they came in the village. The uh, drug smugglers came upon them, thought they were p- the police, and actually started shooting at them. So they had to run for cover, right? But the cool thing is these, the drug lords uh, later on realized that it was a mistake. We shouldn't have shot at them. They weren't police. And the drug lords came and apologized to the missionaries because of the great work they were doing in the villages. Isn't that bizarre? <laughs> I love bizarre stories. And, you know, it's just pretty amazing. It's kind of a romanticism, really, when you think about what they do for the Lord and the great things that God is doing through them. Uh, and, but don't worry, I'm staying here. I'm not going to go and, and leave you guys. Anthony's having a heart attack in the back. 
But this kid is a servant. All he wants to do is serve the Lord and make a difference for Jesus Christ. The second is a family in Afghanistan, namely Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan. They teach the people English, and they provide much-needed supplies to the inhabitants. I got a recent picture. It's a great picture. It's like a postcard. It's a picture of the five of them, a family of five, and they're sitting on this, this plateau of a mountain range, and you can see the Smoky Mountains behind them. It's really beautiful. And it's so cool. They all have this cute smile. And somebody, when they snapped the picture, there was some uh, military choppers behind them. And they got the, the helicopters. It was just great. It's a great picture. So we laugh at it when we see it. But uh, you know what they asked for? Their vision was that every house in Kabul, every household, Kabul, I believe, has 4 million people in it. But their vision is that every person or every family in Kabul would have their own Bible. And they're trying to achieve that. And they're praying for supplies. And one of the things they ask for is, I love these cards, they say, please pray for us and pray that God would raise up some more Bible smugglers <laughs> because it's illegal. You've heard some of the stories in Afghanistan, right? I mean, it's serious. They don't, you know, you can't have a church and, you know, you can't tell people about Jesus. And in a lot of these countries, if you proselytize a Muslim voluntarily, uh, it could be the death penalty for you. So, you know, they say they're looking for more Bible smugglers and keep from getting kicked out or thrown in jail. But if it happens, it happens. And again, all they want to do is serve the Lord and make a difference through Jesus Christ. But these missionaries had something in common. They had the spirit of Stephen, right? And they also, Stephen had the spirit of the apostles. And the apostles had the spirit of Christ. And we would do well to obtain and maintain that same spirit and tap into what God's desire is for us to do here today. Let's pray.